Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Uh, This is, as you'll note in the bulletin, part one. Uh, In times past, when I preached this passage in Matthew, uh, we spent two Sundays with it also. Uh, When I preached this passage, the parallel passage in Mark, uh, not in this congregation, but a previous one. Uh, We also spent two Sundays there, first looking at the woman, uh, then at Jairus and his daughter. Uh, This time, though, we're going to split it up into two, Lord willing, uh, and we will focus here on the authority and power of Christ, uh, because this passage is part of of a three-part sort of um, narrative. Uh, that this belongs with the casting out of the gathering de- demoniac and also the quelling of the waves and wind upon the sea. And all of them are meant to, to reveal the divine power of Jesus Christ in different ways. That's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning. Uh, when we come to it again next Sunday, Lord willing, we will focus upon faith and the lessons that it has to teach us there. Before I read our passage, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he had blessed the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you again this morning in the name of Christ. And as we sit at the feet of the evangelist Luke and hear the words that he wrote, words that your Holy Ghost infallibly inspired for our infallible instruction, we ask that you would give us the same spirit, that he might dwell within our hearts, and that he might prepare our hearts to receive your word under fruitfulness, that it might not be barren, that it might not return unto you void, nor that it might not work in our destruction, but rather in our salvation, in our knowledge of you and our love of you, and in our fruitfulness in your grace. We ask, dear Lord, that this word would produce the fruit of repentance of sin, faith in Jesus Christ, and obedience to his will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him, and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and thou sayest, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. 
And he said unto her daughter, Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spoke, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed in the scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat, and her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. We have seen in our narrative, especially at the latter half of Luke chapter 8, uh, we have seen many come up in many forces, we would say, come up in opposition to Jesus Christ and his work. Uh, we saw uh, in the earlier paragraphs uh, when they were crossing the sea, beginning it uh, with verse 22, how they were intended to go to the other side to preach the gospel. And the storm and the winds came down. And the disciples thought that they perished, that their ministry was at an end. They were worried and fearful. But Jesus calmed the waves and and stilled the wind. And they met after they crossed the sea uh, in the region of Gadara or Gergesa. The demoniac, the man that was uh, tormented and and destroyed by devils, not just one or two, but a legion of such. We saw how the devils were powerless to oppose Jesus' command, and even as they were commanded and sought to avoid the abyss, they were driven in the pigs into the abyss. And now we see upon his return into Galilee, or the regions on the western shore of Galilee, two more enemies. Uh, Death and disease. Death uh, immediately and death on the slow. Uh, We have uh, the final enemy of mankind. We, We are stressed and distressed by the primordial powers the forces of nature, the wind and the waves, and the things that uh, insurance companies just call acts of God. And whether we acknowledge it or see it with eyes of faith or not, we live in a culture and in a world that is distressed by the demonic powers and by the kingdom of Satan. But we are also, as human beings, living under the cloud and the darkness and the shadow of death. It is appointed unto all men to die, says the Apostle. 
And it is, as uh, the Apostle declares in 1 Corinthians 15, the final enemy that shall be conquered. It is the last of the enemies that utterly, I mean, he is destroyed, but extinguished and done away with is death. And death is man's certain enemy. It might be that any time the devils come into the contact with man that bears the image of God, uh, that also is whether or not he has the grace of God, is capable of the grace of God, that the devils in their hatred and misery uh, seek to destroy mankind. But the devils are not everywhere. And it may be that the forces of nature and their blind power often bring mankind into jeopardy. But it is not always present, at least not to our understanding. But there is one thing that we all know, is that man must die. It is man's certain enemy. And what it is in Scripture is hard to define because Scripture is the revelation of God and the power over sin and of death. And so it doesn't always focus its attention on exactly what it is apart from that judgment of God. Apart from God's involvement in it and grace, uh, we have very little snippets of pictures. It's there. We tend to read over them. Uh, our hearts tend to go immediately from, from there to the grace of Jesus Christ, and we don't linger there. But it is there. It is uh, that final dissolution of your humanity when it occurs. Genesis chapter 3. And the day that you eat of the fruit of, of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you shall die. And at the end of that chapter, in verse 19, uh, and the punishment, uh, the capital of the punishment of Adam, says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Death is the dissolution of that creation that God did when he took the clay and put, molded it together and breathed upon it and made it in his image. It is the disintegration of that. In death, nothing apart, again, speaking apart from the grace of God, how he mitigates this, this awful punishment, what it is without him is is an inability, it's not turned to God, it's not turned to hope. For the grave, says Isaiah 38, 18, for the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. And we, we miss Isaiah's meaning there if we imagine that it's just a place where there is no worship of God. What Isaiah is saying there is a place where there is no enjoyment of his blessings. And if there's no enjoyment of the blessings of God, there are no enjoyment of blessings, period. There is no praise apart from praise of God. There is no gratitude apart from things received from God. They cannot celebrate because there is nothing to celebrate. 
Psalm 6, verse 5, In death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? We are called to worship with Psalm 115, the penultimate verse there. It says, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. It's a gloomy picture. It is not to say, by the way, that the Bible says God is not there. But it is a place devoid of God's benevolent attention. It is a place of wrath. Behold, if I make my bed in hell, lo, thou art there. But that is said not in uh, great joy, but in great trepidation. Korah, or the sons of Korah in Psalm 88, give us a picture of death being cut off from God's merciful attention. In Psalm 88, verses 4 through 12, I am counted. He is describing his, his miseries, but note how he compares it with death so that he might give us a taste of what death is. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength. I have no ability. Free among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more. Note it's not that I don't remember thee, but thou rememberest not. And they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkness and the deeps. Thy wrath lie hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy ways, Salah. Thou hast put my acquaintances far from me. Thou hast made me abomination unto them. I am shut up, I am, and I cannot come forth. My eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched my hands out unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Salah. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? Or thy faithfulness in destructions? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark? and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness. Again, having God to forget you in Scripture is not uh, just a, a statement about God's omniscience. It's not that at all. Remember how uh, the Lord describes love to those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Then those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified, Romans 8. But it's not that he only knows certain people and doesn't know others. It's not that God has a limited knowledge of the future. So what does Paul mean there? He means that that he knows us. He has given his attention to us. He knows us in and out in a way that we belong to him and a privilege that does not belong to others. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter seven, uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, he says, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Does that mean he didn't know that, that Judas was Judas? Of course not. Does it mean he didn't know that the hypocrites, or who they were before the foundation of the world, did he not know Caiaphas and Antipas? Did he not know uh, Pilate and all the rest? Yes, of course he did. Did he not know Ananias and Sapphira? Yes. But he did not know them with that benevolent attention that cared and cultivated them. They are forgotten by him, forgotten by his mercy and grace. They are left alone. The picture that the psalmist paints of 
of the dead apart from God is one of isolation, of loneliness, of despair, of wants unsatisfied, of power that is unable to be exercised, of frustration and despair. It is in a way that just blanket nothingness is not nearly fearful. It's a cognitive conscious nothingness. When we make somebody feel like they are nobody, it's not a pleasant thing. When somebody makes us feel like we are nothing, it's not a pleasant thing. And the psalmist takes that sort of notion that he is a stink in the eyes of his companions to describe what death ultimately is. It is an awful power. And here we see death working, as I said before, slowly and also quickly. And the daughter of Jairus, it works relatively quickly. Jairus, a man who had to humble himself by this time already, opposition to Jesus Christ is working in the leaders of of Judea and even in Galilee, the scribes and the Pharisees that were so much the backbone of the synagogues there. Nevertheless, a man in great desperation, uh, the ruler, uh, an elder, uh, a bishop of his synagogue, has is going to cast about on the only hope that he has on Jesus Christ. And even while he is going to see her, she will die. He will not be quick enough. Uh, we, uh, what, he has many, many annoyances, we might say, frustrations, worries pressed upon him. We have, uh, Jesus has agreed to come. Uh, then we have in uh, the, the passage in verse 42 that he is being pressed. The people throng him. Uh, so this means that it can't be a quick move to, this, to the ruler's house. And in the midst of this, Jesus himself stops and tries to establish who it was that, that touched him and drew uh, that mercy from him. And in the midst of another delay, he is told that his daughter has died, his only daughter. Uh, the, uh, the phrasing of the Greek here, uh, monogonus, that she is his only begotten. Uh, she is dear to him. And, he, and she is, interestingly enough, uh, it's the same age as, as long as the woman has been afflicted, 12 years. A tender girl, a maiden, uh, one that would pull the heartstrings. And death takes her. And she is known to be dead. We, we, and we'll come to this in just a second. But when Jesus says he, uh, she is not dead but sleepeth. He's not denying the fact of her death. Uh, we are told this plainly. That the spirit has departed from her corpse. And comes back to it. We get a picture by the way of what happens at the dissolution. And the nature of the soul. Uh, the soul is not just the, the conscious active parts of our body, but that it inheres in a spirit that can be identified, separated from our bodies. It has to come back to the dead, to the corpse, uh, to revivify it. But it does so. 
but not before death works. And then we see this woman uh, that's with, in verse 43, a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians and neither could be healed of any. Uh, Mark in chapter 5, verse 25 and 26 goes into a little bit more detail. Luke tells us that she had spent everything she had trying to get better and was not made better. Mark is even more pointed. A certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians had not, and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. That everything she did made her life more miserable. This is not a woman that was quietistic in her faith. This is not a woman that, uh, that didn't do everything she could to get healed. This is a woman that had been spending 12 years trying to get healed. And understand why. She, her ailment particularly was one that set her part as unclean in Israel. Uh, Leviticus 15.25, she had that which would make her untouchable, unclean. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.1, this is a cause of divorce. So her husband marrying her, and there's no reason to believe that she was an elderly lady, marrying her, and then finding out she had this disease, or this disease, she contracting it, whenever she did, would, by its very nature, mean that she was not going to have children and that she was unclean, that she had an uncleanness in her. A ceremonial, that is true, but this is one of the causes of divorce allowed under the law of Moses. And, you know, women in that day did not have the same social safety nets that women in this day have. Uh, she she needed the and we're not told that she was divorced, but we're to, but it is important to know that her condition is not just the misery and the aggravation of an illness. It is a living death for her, because it separates her from the worship of the Lord. It separates her from the synagogues. It separates her from the congregations. It separates her from the festivals. It separates her from her husband. It separates her from her neighbors. She already is experiencing what the son of Korah in the Psalm 88 was describing as misery like unto death. Death doesn't always work immediately and with finality. I mean, after all, reading Genesis chapter 3, uh, when man, uh, the woman and the man ate the fruit of the tree of the garden, of God, uh, not, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not die, drop dead right there immediately like Ananias and Sapphira uh, in the early church in Jerusalem. They carried on. They lived a long life. But it was a life that was now marked by dying. By growing weaker as one aged, as toiling and struggling merely to live. That there is a difference in mankind from uh, the birds of the air that don't have to worry about being fed, the, 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 the hills of flowers not worthy, worrying about being clothed, 
that we have misery upon misery upon misery by the judgment of God and ultimately by death itself. But then enters Christ Jesus, Lord even over death. As he told Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so when he comes to this dead corpse whose spirit had already departed, he speaks to it, we might say, as if it is still her. Because he who calls things that are not as though they are, who speaks into the darkness saying, let there be light, and therefore there can be no more darkness. Who says, let us make man in our image, and therefore there is man. Who speaks and it is, says, make it up. Mark has his actual Aramaic words, Talitha Kumi. And she gets up. Just like he spoke unto the corpse, four days dead of Lazarus in the tomb. Uh, Come forth, Lazarus. There was no opposition. There's no power that can resist. When he talks to the wind and the waves, he says, peace be still. There is no uh, meteorological law that me can rise up against the word of God and they immediately quell. When Joshua asks of the Lord to stop the sun, it doesn't matter what physics and astrophysics tell us about gravity and the turn of the earth and this and that about time. It doesn't matter a bit. God wants this day to stand still. It will stand still for Joshua. The devils. Worrying that he, Jesus has come to torment them before his time. Does it matter? Does it matter that they are legion? They are cast out. Christ is Lord also over the dead. And it's not a half measure uh, resurrection. None of Jesus' resurrections were by half measure. When Lazarus came forth, he no longer stank. He wasn't the zombie. He wasn't deteriorating. He wasn't destroyed. He came forth in full vigor of life. This little girl gets up. Uh, Matthew, I believe, maybe Mark, tells us that she served them. That she was hungry. That she had to be fed. She wasn't even suffering from the sickness that got her dead in the first place. He healed and healed completely. And so also with the woman, with minimum attention, she touched him and the blood was fully staunched. Mark tells us she touched him and she knew immediately that she had been made whole. That she received Mercy from the Lord. She didn't have to wait for the God to, to call her forth and to confirm her faith. He had power. His mercy was, was willing and ever present to do good. And he does it. We'll see next week that this drawing forth of the virtue from Christ Jesus wasn't an automatic thing. She didn't come and steal grace from him. Uh, that this was something that he gave Uh, an answer to her faith. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, for our purposes, it is that she is there, a woman who had been unclean, untouchable for 12 years, is now clean. 
when the leper comes and violates not only the law of God, but all social decency, comes into the crowd and lays before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The Lord touches him. And instead of contracting the leprosy, the leprous man contracts health and salvation and is made clean. And we see, as I mentioned before, that Christ comes and changes even the nature of death. Look at verse 52. Verse 52, he says, they were weeping. This is the crowds that were there, the professional mourners. Uh, Matthew tells us that they even had flute players. And he is casting them all out. And he is saying and comforting those that he's inviting in. Uh, Peter, James, and John, the mother and the father. Uh, he's comforting them. Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laugh into scorn. You know, the world does not scorn you or make you try to make you feel ashamed of the things of Christ Jesus for your good. They do so to try to dissuade you uh, to benefit from Christ's power, whether consciously or not. And the scorn of the world itself must be scorned. But nevertheless, Luke is very clear when he says that they scorned him, laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Not supposing that she was dead. Knowing that she was dead. Christ doesn't come here into Jairus' house and discover through his divine omniscient that the girl had merely swooned or in a coma. As miraculous as that would be, it is very clear that this depart, the spirit had departed and comes back to the child. So what does Christ mean? She is not dead. She only sleeps. He means that from his perspective, from the Christ's perspective, from the one who is God in the flesh, that death is no more final to him than sleep is final. To us, death is a finality. To the death, to us, death brings in. And were it not for the gospel, we would still think that. And we would still live in that way. And we would still fear. But in Christ Jesus, death is not death. Turn back to Psalm 115. In verse 17, it says, The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. But that's not all that the psalmist says. He ends the psalm with verse 18. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. That there is a death that is not death. That there is a death that is not quite the same thing as that dreaded isolation and inattention from the Lord as that dreaded judgment of God. In the book of Revelation, this is why those that are sent to the, to the lake of fire are said to enter into the second death. Those that are received into glory in the first resurrection, that is the new birth, the second death has no power over them because they do not experience it. It is not real for them. There is no second death for you and me because we have been born again. We have two births, therefore only one death. But those that only have one birth will have two deaths. 
But for us, death is but a transition. It is, like everything else, a vanity. It cannot hold in finality. It is not God. It does not have eternal power. It cannot make things nothing that God has called something. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through the 18, Paul writes, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so also them which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And he says in 1 Corinthians that even we that are alive at that time will go through a change. Not all shall die, but all shall be changed. Wherefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. You know, there are, there are groups and sects that will then, from the strength of this and other passages of the New Testament, say that when the dead die, they sleep. This is not clearly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about, he's using sleep like Jesus uses sleep here, to talk about the vanity and the temporariness and the non-finality of death. That if you die in Christ Jesus, it is as if you slept in him, that you will wake up. And that, as we see in the book of Revelation, as we see in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, it is not an unconscious sleep, but rather a transition into consciousness of blessedness. But that is done in the power of Christ Jesus. Even if it was before Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the power of that, the, the temporary power of, of death finds its its temporariness, its defeat, if you will, in the defeat of death upon the cross in Jesus Christ. It is on the virtue of what he did upon the cross that the psalmist can say, nevertheless, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. In death, in life, I will be praising him. And so we see in this passage, that Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings, Lord of earthly lords, but also lords of the powers of this world, the primordial powers, the spiritual powers, the powers of death. He calms the storm that made the sailors cry out that they were perishing. He drives off the devils that chains could not contain. He heals the woman that physicians could not make whole. And he raises the maiden whom death could not keep. And so, then, who will you go to when there are no solutions? We have many things that press upon us. We live in a time of national anxiety and chaos and uncertainty about the future. The finances are such a mess that 
it's hard to see how things will improve. Our society is deteriorating, it's growing old, it's growing decadent, and it's growing wicked. Things have happened like this before. But who do we go to? Do we go to despair? Do we go to isolation and bring death upon us before it's time? Or do we go to Jesus Christ, who brings life from the dead, who can enliven uh, societies, who can enliven churches, who can enliven congregations, who can enliven your heart and mind? Luke is telling us that in Christ Jesus, there is not anything that isn't God himself. That he is God fully in the flesh. He's not some half God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ Jesus. And we do thank you that you do indeed answer prayer. We thank you, Father, that you have exercised your power on behalf of your people in the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the victory over the grave in our own heart and over sin. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would continue to be victorious, that we would not doubt but only believe, and that we would go forth in triumph and the triumph and victory of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.